Looking Back in Time, the history show on KCLR with John Moynihan, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltok, Sport and Media. A very good evening. You're welcome along to the History Show here on KCLR. I'm John Moynihan, and thanks for joining me for what is the last episode of the current series. It feels like just yesterday that we got started, and here we are. But, as usual, we've got lots to get through tonight, so here's what's coming up. The third and final part of our chat with Thomastown man Joe Doyle, as he concludes his series on the inscriptions on the tombstones at Sompeltagon, a historic medieval graveyard in Grenon, County Kilkenny. Radio documentary maker Tom Hurley on his new book The Last Voices of the Irish Revolution telling the story of 20 people who lived during the Irish Civil War and who had lived into the early years of the new millennium. What memories had they? What were their stories? And how did they reflect on those turbulent times? Tom will be telling us more about that a little bit later on. So all of that, plus plenty more besides over the course of the next hour, I do hope that you can stay with me. As always, I'd love your thoughts and interaction throughout the programme, so please do get in touch. You can text me on the dinnersready.ie sponsored KCLR text and WhatsApp line. That's on 083. 306-9696 or you can email the programme at the History Show at kclr96fm.com Our webpage and podcast for Season 2 of the programme can be accessed at kclr96fm.com slash the hyphen history hyphen show so you can listen back to the programme there or on the KCLR app and this week's show will be uploaded there later this evening if you want to have another listen and uh, again that whole series and the first series indeed is uh, up on the app there uh, to listen back to so do feel free to do that um, but we're going to be hearing as I say in part 2 from Joe Doyle on the inscriptions on the tombstones of Thample Tagon so we're going to take a very quick ad break right now and we'll be back with that in a couple of minutes don't go anywhere Looking back in time, the history show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltok, Sport and Media. You're listening to the history show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're welcome back to part two of the programme. First tonight, we're going to finish off our series on Thompel Tagon. We're talking to Joe Doyle for part three about our series on the inscriptions at the medieval graveyard. The graveyard, which is in the townland of Grenon in Thomastown, is situated on the west hill above the Nore Valley on the main access route to the castle of Grenon. We start off our final retrospective this week with the historical significance of the inscriptions on the tomb of a well-known Kilkenny figure, Jackie Cody. The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. There's another tomb, it's an inscribed marker stone in, in the graveyard and it's to a man called Jackie Cody and it just says J. Cody R.I.P. And the other eight inscriptions in the graveyard could be said, if you were to say in Irish, referred to people at the, the Dini Morla Raw, whereas uh, Jackie Cody was born locally uh, on the Mall and is remembered as a fisherman and uh, a man who lived by his wits in many ways. 
uh, and he made his, as I said, he made his uh, his living from salmon fishing, and much of it, of course, was done illegally. Now, the late Joe Dunphy, who grew up very close to where the temple is, uh, his house would have been uh, um, where the Castle Avenue scheme now is. He had many enthralling stories about Jackie's exploits. And indeed, he penned a poem about one particular exploit in which Jackie, uh, with Joe in tow, fooled the bailiffs. And it was titled, Let the Punishment Fit the Crime. And it is, I think, worth calling to mind. So it goes, come on, come on, over to us. We've been watching you, you see, two fearsome bailiffs on the bank, called to Cody and to me. Out there upon the river, we've been searching for a fish. For a hungry stomach, salmon is a tasty dish. So I often went with Cody on adventures of this kind. In our boat, we'd sail the river. Yes, it thrilled my childhood mind. When it came to gaffing salmon, my friend ranked among the best. And when pockets, they were empty, he would ply his trade with zest. But this day, things had gone badly. No nice salmon graced our boat. So the gaff was safely hidden in the pocket of Jackie's coat. As we glided to the bank then, a stout skiok lay in between. So quite deftly, in its broad butt, Cody stuck the gaff unseen. Out upon the bank at Woodpond, the two bailiffs searched in vain. They had found no gaff or salmon as they stood there soaked in rain. They warned Cody they would have him. They were really, really wild. But with me, they could do nothing. I was only just a child. In the courtroom some weeks later, the prosecution did not fail and a questionable system sent Jack Cody off to jail. Now, when I recall that sad time, I quite often heave a sigh and I think of such a good man labelled Jailbird in Mount Joy. But the rivers up in heaven theme with salmon, it is said. So stand proudly, Jackie Cody. You've no need to hang your head. One of the more impressive tombs in the temple is the Devereux tomb and the vault underneath it. And this now lies within the bounds of the church itself. So the inscription reads, Here lieth interred near the remains of his father, Walter Devereux, and his mother, Eleanor Devereux, alias Grace, the body of Francis Devereux, who departed this life on the 26th of May, 1794, aged 56 years, with four of his children, erected by his wife, Eleanor Devereux, alias Reed. Now, while this tomb with its vault occupies the most prominent place, as I said, in the graveyard, unfortunately, I've been unable to uncover anything regarding this family who appear to have been wealthier at the end of the 18th century. But there then is a simple wall plaque and all is on it is sacred to the memory of Anthony and Mary Graves. This is the only inscribed memorial that I could find to the Graves family in the temple. But thanks to research carried out by Bernie Kerwin that I mentioned previously, it's clear that it was the burial place of a number of members of that family, but with no headstones put up. And uh, Bernie has discovered the names of 15 other members of that family who are buried here. 
Uh, there was a Richard Graves born 1713, and he was probably the first of that name in Thomas in the Thomastown area. The Anthony Graves mentioned on the memorial, Bernie Irwin tells us, was born the 10th of July 1751 and died 31st of January 1816. His wife, Mary Graves, nee Brett, died 4th of April 1819. Now, they lived at um, a very impressive house there in Thomastown on Ladywell. Uh, Abbey View is the name of the house. And again, thanks to Bernie, we know of an Elizabeth or Bessie Graves uh, married to uh, the, uh, Amos Davis, and they lived at Millview. Now, Abbeyview and Millview are on adjoin- adjoining sites, and uh, access to them is by the same the same avenue. And they lived at Millview, uh, later occupied by the Clifford family, and uh, which we've already mentioned. She died, that's Bessie, died 26th of July, 1813, and her place of burial is also given as the Temple. The late Liam Hoyne and the Hoyne family now live in Millview, told me that the Graves business family in New Ross were connected with those at Abbeyview. The New Ross family uh, were international shipping agents for much of the 19th century. Uh, you would have had the provision trade with Newfoundland and of course uh, around the time of the famine and afterwards uh, you would have had trade uh, emigration to uh, North America. But we would probably best remember them now as a business to the agricultural construction sector. And of course it would be remiss of me not to mention that Reverend James Graves, the son of Reverend Richard Graves, was also related. And he was a noted historian and along with Augustus Prim, founded the original Kilkenny Archaeological Society in 1849. Uh, he died in 1886 and is buried in St. Canis's in Kilkenny. Now, interestingly, uh, Leslie, who did the, uh, uh, compiled the Austri clergy and parishes, mentions that uh, this uh, James Graves uh, was married to Maria the daughter of Lieutenant Colonel William Dan Nichols. And this leads to one of the more intriguing memorials here. So it's a double barrel name, Dan Nichols, and the monument, the description read, sacred to the memory of Lieutenant Colonel William Dan Nichols, Royal Ar- Artillery, who died at sea 10th of November, 1839, and of Maria, his beloved wife, who departed this life 24th of February, 1849, and is here interred. Both eminent for their piety, beloved for their charity, and distinguished by the profession and practice of true Christianity, faithful in the performance of every duty to their God, their children, and their fellow men, they now enjoy, through Christ Jesus, the blessings of a glorious immortality. Erected to the memory of our beloved parents by their three surviving children, Gustavus, Jasper and Maria Nichols, AD 1850. Uh, Bernie Kerwin and Mary Castellan uh, didn't locate this tomb when they so- surveyed the graveyard in 2015, but I had noted it some 30 years previously, and it was a substantial chest tomb, but has since been vandalized and for the most part demolished. Now, I didn't record the inscription on the day of my visit because I couldn't uh, clean the, 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 the white marble plaque and get ivy off and uh, lichen. But when I returned at a later date, the white marble plaque had been removed 
And uh, so I was wondering, would the inscription ever surface again? But only by chance, a number of years later, while waiting for items to be delivered to my desk in the National Archives, I started to browse through the copies of uh, various reference books on the shelves and came across a series called The Memorials of the Dead, a journal that I had not heard of previously. And looking through it, I discovered that it was uh, comprised of uh, tombstone inscriptions submitted by people in different parts of the country, and the information was organised by county. So I went through a number of volumes and, needless to say, in each one, looked to see what was there for Kilkenny. And I was in luck. One of the entries was for inscriptions in the Temple graveyard. And I discovered then the Dan Nichols transcription. It had been transcribed by a Miss Figers, who was presumably daughter of the founder of the journal. And at least now, while the physical evidence of the inscription no longer survives, we can be certain of where the tomb was located and the information thereon. There's a tomb also to the family, and it says, to the memory of Somerset Robert Cook, youngest son of Reverend Richard Cook, who departed this life on Saturday, August, and it's not filled in, uh, and it appears to be 1815, aged 13 years. So clearly I had difficulty in reading the inscription but if I'd given it some thought and done what Mary Pastelin and Bernie Cameron did in 2015, consulted Leslie's listing of the clergy and parishes of Ossery, I would have discovered that Somerset Robert Cook died the 7th of August, 1836, uh, aged 16 years. And there's a monument to Reverend Richard Cook in St. Mary's in Thomastown, erected by uh, Major Fred White, his son-in-law. So I come then to the, the final inscription in the temple, and this is the Innes tomb, and that's spelled I-N-N-E-S. Uh, so it's Henry Innes died August 31st, 1816, aged 15 years. Essie Innes died January the 21st, 1855, aged 46 years. Uh, the Innes family were prominent millers in the area for much of the 19th century and at one stage operated the island mill and the mill on the opposite bank of the river known then as the Little Mill. And during the 1870s, these two mills were bought by the Pillsworth milling family uh, in a bank sale. And so you had uh, Pillsworths then uh, had the three mills, uh, the Little Mill, the Island Mill and the, the, the largest of the lot, uh, Grenon Mill. So that is basically an account of the inscriptions in the in Temple take on. And um, we are fortunate that they have survived. Some of them, the the monuments are quite worn and, uh, and some, some of the slabs have broken. But uh, for the most part, we can make out the inscriptions. And uh, lately, there was a restoration project carried out and the boundary wall uh, was uh, the breaches in that were repaired and the gable uh, with the gothic window uh, the stone there was uh, repointed and things like that so maybe there's uh, 
every reason to hope that maybe in another couple of centuries, uh, the temple will still be there. Another man from the Mall Mill Street part of the town was Paddy Doolan. And he was a man who had a way with words and has left us a number of memorable verses about Thomastown and its people. In one of his poems, The Plea of the Poacher, he spells out the dilemma of the caught fisherman following the abolition of net fishing for salmon upstream from the tidal waters in 1948, when the teams of boatmen were bought out and fishing became a sport rather than a means to an uncertain income. The following three verses highlight the cotman's predicament. There's a clean, lovely fish that I spotted this day just under the willows and I on me way. But the new regulations are hard on a man, so I should forget what I'm damned if I can. For me larder is empty and prices are high, and they'd have to feed me above in Mount Joy. My father used nets and his father before, and nobody laid any shame at their door. When nets were abolished, alas and alack, I took to the stroke call and never looked back. I never looked back, and I'm not going to try, though I don't like the thought of a trip to Mount Joy. The net was abolished, the rod was the thing, the cotman was broken, the tourist was king. I took to the stroke call, and here on this spot, I'm aiming to use it, illegal or not. For a cold, empty belly is bad for a boy, and there's no trace of hunger above in Mount Joy. And a big thank you to Joe Doyle there once again for his explanation as to the history and meaning of the inscriptions on the headstones of the tombs of Templetagon. You can, of course, listen back to part one and part two of our chat with Joe on our podcast, which is available now on the KCLR app in the catch-up section, or you'll also find it on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Just search KCLR History Show. Right now, it's time for a break on the programme. I do hope that you'll stay tuned, though, and join me again in part three, when we'll be hearing from the author of a new book which explores the lives and experiences of 20 people who lived during the Irish Civil War. Tom Hurley joins me in a couple of minutes. Don't go away. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Gwiltocht, Sport and Media. You're listening to The History Show on KCLR with John Moynihan. And you're very welcome back to part three of The History Show. Last Voices of the Irish Revolution is a new book by Cork-based author Tom Hurley, which tells the story of 20 people who lived during the Irish Civil War and who had shared their experiences in the early years of the new millennium. The interviews came from an array of counties across all corners of Ireland, including Antrim, Clare, Cork, Donegal, Dublin, Galway, Kerry, Leash, Limerick, Longford, Meath and Waterford. But don't worry, there's also plenty of references to Carlo and Kilkenny people and uh, landmarks and so on, and you'll be hearing more about that in the following piece. There's a broad scope of information and it details everyday life and offers a fresh perspective on the experiences of ordinary people and civilians, as well as those who were directly involved in the war. 100 years after the Civil War ended, these 20 interviews come together to create a unique oral account of the revolutionary period and the tensions that were brewing in the run-up and aftermath. And uh, here's the interview that I had with the book's author, Tom Hurley. 
Wednesday nights from 6. This is KCLR's History Show. Tom, first of all, could you tell us more about how it came to pass that you wrote Last Voices of the Irish Revolution? Yeah, so basically in 2003, there was the 80th anniversary of the end of the Irish Civil War, and I, I didn't think there was a huge amount about it, like there wasn't much, there was talk about it, not a huge amount, um, there wasn't a huge amount about it in the you know, the media, there wasn't a huge amount of debate about it, so basically I just said to myself, um, I made a greater documentary, so I said I might many civilians and combatants still alive who would remember the Irish Civil War and the years leading up to it and the years after it. So um, I was interested in talking to, as I said, civilians and combatants. So the, most of the people I spoke to would have been 100 years of age or more. A few of them were under that. But they would all have been, you know, what I would call maybe, you know, credible ages to be talking about, you know, witnessing things. You know, there's not, there isn't like, you know, stories about people being, you know, two years old and remembering this or that. This is kind of people who would have been, you know, 18, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23 in the 19, 20, 21 period, 23 period. Um, so basically I went all around Ireland, the island of Ireland, and I did 18 interviews between January and July 2003. And then I did um, two interviews um, in the United States in July 2004. Um, so basically, the, the people I spoke to, it would be a mixture of men, women, Catholic, Protestant, um, civilian, and then people who joined various organizations, um, including um, the IRA, Common Amman, Free State Army, um, Civic Guard, which became Angara Shikana, and also people who would have um, had links to things like the UBS. And, um, they would have had various jobs as well, the civilians, like um, they would have been, uh, like one man would have been a teacher at the time, um, and various other jobs. So they, it's, it's a broad mix, really, uh, covering the island of Ireland. Like I was in a lot of counties, um, yeah, too many to go into, I suppose, but I was in, you know, I, I was up in Donegal, I was down in Cork, I was in Kerry, I was in Belfast, I was in Leash, Dublin all these places. So most counties in Ireland would be represented in the book. Um, there was travel between um, the people I spoke to. Um, so for example, one man who might have been born in Cork, but he was interned up in, up in County Down. So he was up there. Um, other people might have been in jail during the Civil War. They would have met people from other counties where they were jailed. People who joined the, the Free State Army would have met people from more counties. Um, there would have been stories from other counties that they would have told from being in those counties. Um, so, and then the people I spoke in America, because um, immigration was a huge part of, of life in Ireland after the Civil War. Um, so the people that I spoke to in America, um, they immigrated to America obviously after the Civil War um, for various reasons. And one of the guys I spoke to in Ireland as well, he had immigrated to America after the Civil War as well, but he came home. And he spent over a decade there, but he came back. But an awful lot of them who went didn't come back, of course. The book takes a chronological approach, Tom, spanning 50 years in total, which begins with the oldest interviewee's birth in 1899 and ends on the date that the Irish Free State became a republic in 1949, of course. Can you tell us a little bit more about this? It, it, it just worked out that way. I thought it had to be... I wanted to, talk, to include the period leading up to the revolutionary period and I wanted to include the years afterwards. 
Um, so I, 50 years was it was kind of con- convenient and, and you know I'm happy it worked out that way so I mean I know it's called um, Last Voice of the Dearest Revolution and the 1919 to 3 period is, is the bulk of the book really but the years leading up to it and the years after it are, are I would say all the very important so you have you have stories related to and like the stories are pertinent to the interviewees um, it's their kind of what they told me is kind of leading the book so you have stories related to the Boer War because one of the interviewees thought it was possibly in the Boer War. There's Titanic, one man witnessed Titanic three times. He's got stories about that. Um, you've got World War One. They, you know, they name people who they knew, specific people who went out World War One and and fought and died out in World War One. Some who came back. Um, you've got Lusitania, a woman who knew a man in Lusitania. Um, the lockout in Dublin, a man's memories of that. You've got 1916, of course, and again very specific memories of people who were who took part in that and of, of people who died in that. Um, then you've got the 1918 general election as well, um, right the way up to the Troubles then. And then after 1923, you've got life in Ireland, which was um, tough for people. There was a lot of poverty, as I was told, um, a lot of immigration. And you've got then right up to um, World War Two. And one of the stories actually is about a man who, who talked to me about meeting Adolf Hitler. 1935 but it goes beyond that as well it goes it goes into the um when ireland became a republic as well um so it's got it's got loads in it really it, it, i'd say for anyone interested in you know the years before the revolution before 1919 we'll say and years after 1923 there's a huge amount in that as well and the travel like you hear that oh there was no travel back in the olden days there probably wasn't but there was still a good bit of travel going on um you know there was there's a story of a woman I interviewed her in Leash, and like they were they were going to kill there a fair bit. There was people up in Belfast. They had, they found themselves down in Dublin for various reasons. Um, so there was travel going on. As I mentioned earlier, the man from Cork who was up in up in Ballykinder, he was interned up there. Um, now, and a lot of the people I interviewed did stay in their own areas, um, but as I said, there was a lot of movement. And again, one man I interviewed up in County Loud, he ended up going to college in St. Pat's in 1918, and then after that, he came down to Cork to go to an Irish college so there was there was movement that way um, and as well as some of the other people I interviewed as well that's how they found themselves in Kilkenny and meeting Kilkenny people um, and, and the Carol stories in that as well so yeah there was a lot there, there was movement of people I, I, from what I found anyway and of course the whole immigration thing as well a man spoke of um, being in you know you could be in a pub in California York and you'd meet all these Irish people and they'd be talking about their reasons for immigrating um, so I, th- I think it's a new, you know, a different kind of take on, on, on the, those years, really. Some of the people featured in the book are truly amazing, fascinating people, Tom. They were all of a great age when you interviewed them in 2003 and four. And I see Ellen Troy was 102 years of age, for example, she being a, a Port Arlington lady, I think. When you interviewed all of these people, did you find that there was much of a crossover in terms of the information given? Was it difficult to delineate between it all? Because there must have been boatloads of information gathered. Yeah, I got a lot of information, all right, and I suppose one of the challenges was, um, I'm from Cork, obviously, so I, I'd be familiar with most counties in Ireland, but there would be you know, the grassroots history of certain areas that I wouldn't be overly familiar with. So, for example, when I was up in Galway and I was told about a landlord being shot, like I wouldn't have heard of this landlord until I looked into him, so I had to look into that. Um, it was the same about when I was um, 
talking to the man who was up in County Down with, you know, all these, he named three or four people from Kilkenny. I wouldn't have been familiar with at least two of them. So I had to look into them. And up in Donegal as well, I was told stories about things that happened and, you know, crossing into Tyrone and this. And I had to look into that as well. So there was a lot of, like, it's one thing being told this and then you have to kind of just look into it. But I was very fortunate in that all the people I spoke to were very genuine. Um, they, they, there was no, you know, um, exaggerated stories told. Um, everything was very on the level, um, and and the details were, were were super like spot on. Really, one man, for example, told me about going to Dungarvan to see Michael Collins uh, um, give a speech, and he named four or five people on a on the truck that day. And I looked into it, and he was spot on with all those people that were on the truck. Um, and he was over, he was, must have been 100 at the time recounting this. So they were spot on. Um, and the names they gave me, like they were able to, like you do hear stories now, you know, people handed down stories and, you know, it might be just a blanket name. They might say out oh, the back tens or the auxiliaries, but these people were able to name specific back and tens by name. And I was able to chase them up and see who they were. You know, these are the kind of details you get from people who were there, you know. Um, another man was able to tell me a story about um, a, 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 a young boy that he was, he was at a meeting one night and there was an announcement that a, a person they knew called McGordy um, had been injured because he, he found a grenade and talked with a, a, a football and he started playing with it and he got injured. So I looked into this and he was spot on as well all those years later. That happened in 1923. This, this McGordy got injured from a, a grenade that he found. Um, so spot on information and you just had to look to find you know just not, not, not that I didn't believe what they were saying but when you wouldn't be familiar with certain aspects of, of, of you know the hinterlands just to look into that but it was all spot on you know and then of course you have to look into some of the people they were talking about like they might say or oh, such and such went to America afterwards so then I'd look into what became of that person maybe in America and I did, I did a few occasions just to see what became of them when they, when they went over to America you know, there's this notion sometimes that if you immigrate to America, you know, it's the land of opportunity and the land of gold and all this. But it wasn't like that for everybody. Some people found themselves in hard times. So I look into that aspect of it as well. And it was also very tough for the people who stayed at home. Um, even if you had been in the army, if you had been, you know, they were, they were downsizing as well after the Civil War. So there was a lot of people who had been in the army were demobbed and they fell in hard times as well. Um, so there's all these different things to look into. Um, one man who was in the Civic Guard, which became the Guard of Shirkana, like he spoke to me about a case of infanticide and the heel to it. It was one of his first cases. It was in 1922. So I looked into that and the details of that are in the book as well. Uh, and then, of course, there would have been things that maybe they mightn't have wanted to talk about or maybe that they might have, you know, it might have slipped their mind with the passage of time or maybe they just simply didn't want to talk about it. So I would have looked into those kind of things as well. And there's a few of those in the book as well. But some of the things I was told kind of warranted, you know, additional research. There are a number of references in the book regarding landmarks, locations and personalities relating to the counties of Carlow and Kilkenny. What were the most interesting stories from the two counties that you might like to recall? Yeah, well, one man called Patsy Holmes from Cork. He was born in 1902 and he was involved in the IRA, but he was interned up in Bally Kindler in County Down in 1921. And he met... Kilkenny men up there. Some of them were actually in his hut. He was in hut 19 and the names he named were Jim Lawler, Tom Nolan and Tom Tracy and he names a few others that he says were from Kilkenny as well. Um, 
like I looked into them and just off the top of my head I know that they were in prison in Cork as well before they'd also been in Belfast jail and Wormwood scrubs and and they were transferred up to Bally Kindler they went they went, they went up in a gunboat and that's detailed in the book there was another man as well before he went he, before he was sent up to Bally Kindler he was in Cork as well and he mentioned a warder that he befriended there and his name was John Comerford and he was from Kilkenny so I looked into him and he was he was an ex-serviceman and he was a temporary guard in Cock Jail and there's a story in the book actually about him and another guard they were held up outside the jail and they were one on their home um, and it's in the book Comerford was let go eventually but the other guy was kidnapped and held for a, a period of time and that was to do with the hunger strike in Cork the other man was kind of you know enticing the prisoners who were in the hunger strike you know to eat food and that was leaked to the outside so that's that was part it's, it's in the book about what became of him um then there was um there was a man i interviewed called jack Duff. he was in the free state army and he he was based in kilkenny for a while he was based in the riding school which was a temporary barracks at the time and he he was he remembered that because their first paycheck he got it when he was based in kilkenny and he uh, when they when they landed in Kilkenny, that was their base, really a temporary base because they didn't they were going to push on into Tipperary, which was troubled during the civil war. So basically, before they left Kilkenny, they were offered the opportunity to get um, confession beforehand in the riding school if they wanted, and they could also get absolution out in the barracks, and then they boarded the lorries and started to push on into County Tipperary. That's all in the book as well, and then there's. Um, Henry Phelan, he was from Leash, but he was based in Kellen, he was a guard. And I asked one of the guards of you if he had known um, Henry Phelan. But Henry Phelan would be, I presume it's, it would be a well enough known story in Kilkenny that he was the only guard killed during the Civil War. And the details of that, he, he, he left Kellen to go to Mullinahone to get a slitter. And he, he was he was shot in, in the details of in the book of how he was shot in the in the pub in Mullinahone. And in, interestingly, years ago, maybe ten, eleven, twelve years ago, I did a documentary on Henry Phelan actually and I was around Kilkenny looking for information on this kind of stuff. So that that one brought a lot of memories back when we were talking about that. Um and then there was um Jack Duff as well in nineteen twenty three. He was he was back in Kilkenny um after the Civil War. And he was back in Kilkenny Barracks again for another while before he was moved on again. And another man was telling me then um, he would have taken the anti-treaty side during the Civil War, but he, he, he spoke about Kevin O'Higgins. And listeners will know that Kevin O'Higgins, of course, was, was killed in, in 1927. He was shot up in Dublin. But he, he spoke about um, that one of the reasons was because he, he spoke about a speech that Kevin O'Higgins gave in Mullinavet. Now he, he I, I, I looked into that, and I, it, he, he may well have given it in Mullinavet, but he also gave it in another part of the country as well, where he, someone asked him about executions, and and he says that that was a, that was one of the reasons why he was he was shot, and then of course when you go on again, 1926, um, there was a kind of a war of words, I suppose. Um, uh, one of the members of Fianna Fáil, Sean McEntee, he described. There was a sugar factory at Straw Hall in Carlow, and he described it as a white elephant, which was which caused a bit of a you know a kind of a consternation at the time, and that's in the book as well. And of course, Kevin Barry, of course, he has he has Carlow connections as well, and um, 
the people I interviewed, the, the, the Dublin men, there would have been one man born in 1901, another man born in 1903, and they remember the, the scenes in Dublin at the time that he was hanged, and they go into that in the book. And like, again, these, these people were, you know, young adults at the time. One man was actually working for the Dublin United Tramway Company at the time. So again, they were close on 20 when this was happening. So it stayed in their minds. You'd wonder how, you know, you're talking about 80 years after the event, I know, but I think things like that do stay in the mind, you know. Tom, tell us, where can people find out more information about the book? Oh, yeah, well, it, the book is um, available nationwide um, in, in all bookshops, and it can be ordered online as well. It's called Last Voices of the Irish Revolution by Tom Hurley. So there's plenty about Kilkenny and Carlow in it and most counties in Ireland. And there, there might even be the, you know, the odd name when people are listing men that they might have met in jail or in the army or whatever. Um, that they would, like for example, I spoke to one woman, um, she was from a place called Cantork, but she was down in West Cork. And she, her aunt was actually married to a man, his name was John Arthur Jones, he was in the RIC, but he, he actually, he was from Kildare, but he actually had served in Kilkenny and he didn't get into him while he was based in Kilkenny and he was pensioned in Kilkenny in 1911. So maybe someone out there, that name might ring a bell with them, John Arthur Jones. Um, so there's all these different names, you know, it could be listed, I knew such and such in the army, I knew such and such, um, I met such and such in the jail. You know, it might ring a bell with somebody. I, like I haven't even touched, you know, the tip of the iceberg with the information I've gave here, there's plenty more in the book. Like even this man I spoke to in Mead, he was on a boat, um, that he went to a fish in 1919 and Owen McNeil was there, but he, he, he was, I was looking into the competition that he was involved in and there's a few of the names of people that I put in the book that were in the competition, or even things like that might ring a bell, someone might be looking at and say, oh, that's my grandmother or my grandfather, or, you know, things like that. Because I do look, I do look into the, I do look into the things I was told, you know, even, even if it was just a kind of a, you know, maybe a, 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 a point that wasn't overly elaborated on, I would have looked into it. So, for example, a, guy, a man up in Belfast was talking to me about this girl called Brown who, who got shot in the back. So I looked into her, and that's a very interesting story, and that's in the book as well. Because people, people are named, you know, I look into the dates. Every, every story in this book, every incident is, has a date on it. Another man told me that such and such happened on the date of Ellen Finn's funeral. So I did, like, I had to look who was Ellen Finn, when was Ellen Finn's funeral. So I looked up the records and I found, I could date exactly what he said, because he remembered that this happened on the day of Ellen Finn's funeral. So that, what, I, what he told me, I was able to date to that specific date. So things, it was a lot of detective work involved, but very enjoyable, you know. A big thank you to Tom Hurley there author of the new book Last Voices of the Irish Revolution detailing the accounts of 20 people who lived during and experienced the Irish Civil War. The book is available at all great bookshops now. Indeed, without mentioning names, I have seen it in many bookshops in both Carlow and Kilkenny, so it certainly shouldn't be too hard to find. And if I do say so myself, I have thoroughly enjoyed reading it over the last number of weeks since I got my hands on an early copy. It would make for a great great Christmas gift for the history lover in your life, let me tell you. Anyway... Time is against us. That's it for part three of the programme. Time for a break now. I'll talk to you again in a couple of minutes. The History Show on KCLOR, funded through the Creative Ireland programme at the Kilkenny County Council Heritage Office, which is supported by the Department of Tourism, Culture, Arts, Grail Talk, Sport and Media.